0: You know, it's hard for me to fathom I have arrived at this day. In my previous three pastorates, there was the occasion on which I preached my last sermon as their pastor or associate pastor, but in each situation, I was going on to serve in another congregation. Today is different, for not only is it my last sermon from this pulpit as your Installed pastor, but it is my last sermon as an installed pastor in any congregation. So I, I beg your forgiveness right here at the outset if my words today seem a bit self indulgent, as, as what I have prepared to share with you is a bit more autobiographical in nature than is my norm. But hey, Jim, when you think about it, it's the last time you have to listen to me pontificate from this pulpit, so hopefully you will forgive me. The scripture passages from which inform my comments are drawn first from the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. I hope you notice its tie-in to the anthem the choir will be singing as the offertory. And then from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And I suspect it will be fairly obvious why I chose these words. First, From the 29th chapter of Jeremiah, verses 10 through 13, I invite you to listen for the Spirit's voice as these words are read. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. And then from the Apostle Paul, verses eight and nine of the first chapter of Romans. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world For God, whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his Son, is my witness that without ceasing, I remember you always in my prayers. Friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Back when I was about five years old or so, while we were living in Asheville, North Carolina, Asheville being the town in which my dad began his career in the ministry as the pastor at the Oak Forest Presbyterian Church, I remember when we got our first television, a little black and white set with rabbit ears for reception, and I think we got maybe two or three, maybe four channels, all of them local. And one of the shows was a kid's variety show that came on on Saturday mornings, and it had a segment on it called Spaceship. And during this segment, the host would dress up as an astronaut, and they had a little contraption that looked a little bit like a spaceship, a space rocket. They would invite local kids to take part, and while sitting on a, a little benches that were set up in the spaceship, the shows Host would talk to the kids, ask them questions, try to get laughs, etc. Well, I'm not aware of how it happened, but I got to be on the show and was one whom the host interviewed. And after asking my name, etc., he asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And like many kids at that tender age do, they mirror what one of their parents is doing. So I answered, a minister. And he noted he thought that was great and said, what denomination? And I immediately burst into tears because I didn't know, have any clue what the word denomination meant. (laughs) Well, little did I know it at the time, but some 25 years later, I was standing on the floor of the meeting of Shenandoah Presbytery in Winchester, Virginia, ready to be examined so I could be ordained as the pastor of the Augusta Stone Presbyterian Church in Fort Defiance, Virginia, right off I-81, there as it snakes down the Shenandoah Valley. I'll never forget the question that was posed to me by the examination committee before opening it up to questions on the floor. You are a pastor of a local congregation and you are aware that our Book of Order requires that baptism be administered according to the historic, biblical, Trinitarian formula of in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. A young couple come in to meet you with, about baptizing their infant daughter, and the mother shares that her relationship with her father was an abusive one, so much so that the use of father in any context conjures up painful emotions and experiences. She inquires as to whether her daughter can be baptized without using Father in the liturgy. Please tell your fellow presbyters how you would answer her question. Well, however I answered her question must have been satisfactory because the examination was sustained and I was ordained as the pastor of the Augusta Stone Presbyterian Church on September 6th. 1987, 30 years of age. The Augusta Stone Church, like this one, was an historic congregation, tracing its founding back to 1740. In fact, it was during my time there that we celebrated its 250th anniversary. The four years I served in this small, rural congregation of about 200 members were formative in so many ways, and I will always to be grateful to that congregation for their patience, love, and support offered to a young minister right out of seminary. (laughs) I'll never forget the first weekend we we were there. Teresa Richard, who was kindergarten age at the time, and I moved into the manse, which sat right across from the church on Highway 11 on a Friday. And the very next morning, Saturday morning, someone rung the doorbell, knocked on the door at 6.30, 6.30 a.m., and I went down to find Bill Breeden, a crusty old institution at Augusta Stone, a chewed off cigar, a permanent part of his visage, standing there and he he said, I just stopped by to see what time the new pastor gets up on Saturdays. (laughs) He then proceeded to ask me, whose side are you on? I said, what do you mean, Bill? And he proceeded to riff about the previous pastor's divorce from his wife and how half the congregation was on his side and half the congregation was on her side and he wanted to know where I stood. <laughs> Bill Breeden was quite a character. As a small congregation, Augusta Stone was used to having young pastors stay for a few years and then move on. So I don't think they were surprised when four years after I started there, I announced that I would be leaving to become the associate pastor at the American church in Paris. My world view was greatly expanded during my time in Paris. As with most of us, our world view formed by the, the geography and context in which we are raised, and mine was primarily the southern United States. And the American church there in Paris played a significant role in expanding that context to wit, when we, entered, when we moved to Paris, Richard entered the fourth grade at a, at a French bilingual school, and when we, he got to the sixth grade, they had a basketball team. Now, you've got to understand that Richard was one of a small handful of Americans who attended that school. Most of them were French parents wanting their kids to be able to learn English at a, a, a more Efficient level than in the public schools, and, and most of the kids had never touched a basketball. Monsieur Lalmont was the teacher or the coach, and to be honest, I'm not sure he had ever spent a lot of time with a basketball either. But fortunately, most of the other schools against whom they played were French as well, so to be honest, since our team did have a few kids like Richard who had played with a ball before, they did pretty well. Well, Monsieur Lalmont drove a motorcycle around Paris, so For away games, he ended up recruiting parents to accompany the kids on the metro to go to the game. So I was often able to arrange my schedule, and over the course of the season, Teresa and I ended up kind of being the team's parents. And more specifically, I was the one who went into the locker room with the boys and who held on to the duffel bag, which contained the items the kids didn't want to leave in the locker room. Watches, wallets, bracelets, metro passes, things of that sort, valuable things. And I'll never forget the first day I distributed the items of the players, items to the players after the game was over. And they had changed clothes and were ready to go home, being struck by the contrast. The Star of David bracelet was Jeremy's. The St. Christopher medal was David's. The the watch with the mosque on the face was Yanni's. The watch with the Hindi figure on it was Keith Cerise's. And I remember thinking to myself, what, what a contrast, what a different experience Richard is having regarding persons of other faith than I did growing up first in Asheville and then Chirral, South Carolina. I'm not even sure I knew what a, that, that a Muslim was someone who practiced Islam and, until I got to college. And I surely didn't know one growing up. There was no synagogue in Chirral. Though there was a Catholic church, it was a, a very small one. And it was experiences like that one that led me to reflect on my faith, so much so that when I was asked questions such as, do you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? Which, by the way, is one of the questions posed to me by a member of this search committee, the search committee here, when I was being interviewed, I answered, well, let me put it this way. If I am so fortunate as to find myself in heaven after my journey here on earth is complete, I fully expect to find some of my friends of other faiths also there. Though I applied to become the senior minister of the American church in Paris when the position became vacant, I did not get it, though I did stay on for another 18 months or so as associate pastor before moving back to the United States becoming the pastor and head of staff at the Mount Vernon Presbyterian Church in Sandy Springs, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta. And it was in this congregation that I learned the ups and downs, the ins and outs, the trials and tribulations of of managing a substantial staff. And it proved to be a very fruitful time for shared ministry, as many of the, the things we started when I was there continue to bear fruit today. And it was also in this congregation that Teresa and I were on the receiving end of love and support in the aftermath of Richard's accident resulting in a traumatic brain injury and his subsequent rehabilitation. As we will always be grateful to you for your love and support during my bout with cancer. So we will always be grateful to the Mount Vernon Church for their love and support during that difficult time. Well, after close to 11 years at Mount Vernon, I have activated my resume, or PIF, Personal Information form, and was matched by the PCUSA computer database with your CIF, Church Information form, with the end result of making the mutual decision to become pastor and people here in Caldwell. And after getting past the questions of, why are you moving to New Jersey? Which, by the way, even happened after I arrived here. Why did you move to New Jersey? (laughs) Most folks from here are moving south, not the other way around. After getting past the comments about my accent, and the fact, the story I tell again and again, and I'll continue to tell, and I've told it to you before, and I'm gonna tell it to you again right now, is that shortly after I arrived here in May of 2007, Youth Club was going on down in the Fellowship Hall. And at that time it included eating together, it was a Wednesday afternoon program, it included eating together. So I was sitting at a, at a table with a group of fifth graders and Alyssa Indris, who's in college now, looked up at me and asked, why are you talking like a cowboy? <laughs> So after after getting past the comments about coming to Jersey and about my accent, we settled in and I found a good and faithful congregation in which to minister. As I reflect on the 12 and a half years as your pastor, there are ups, there are downs, there are joys, there are regrets, as is the case in every church I have served. But the enduring theme which I will carry with me is a deep an abiding sense of gratitude. To Barbara Smith and others at the presbytery level, to the staff here in this congregation with whom I have had the good fortune of serving alongside, the, the elders, the deacons, the committees, the choirs, you the congregation. I consider it a deep privilege to have served in your midst and you will always be part of who I am. And for this I will always be grateful. The potential for being a transformative presence in the Caldwells and beyonds which rests in this congregation is substantial. And I encourage and exhort you to seek first the kingdom of God and success will follow. Remember, God calls us to be faithful, not successful. If success comes, praise God, but it will only come as you are faithful. I mentioned earlier my deep and profound gratitude for your support during my bout with cancer and one of the things about dealing with cancer I learned is that there is no textbook which outlines when and when not to share with others your diagnosis. For example, I remember Teresa and I riding with an Uber driver, I think coming back from Newark Airport one time, and, and it was when I was in treatment, and he went, ended up going on and on about having cancer, how God had healed him, et cetera, and I remember saying to myself, well, do I tell him I'm in treatment for it as well? I didn't in that situation, and I discovered that sometimes you share your diagnosis, sometimes you don't. It all depends on the given situation. One time I will always remember, it happened back in November, <laughs> Excuse, I knew this was gonna happen. I had just completed my six months of, of chemotherapy, was still on medical leave from the church, and was actually down in Atlanta visiting Richard and Anna. And as we often do when I visit Richard, we go get a haircut at Richard's favorite place. And I had a nice young guy cutting my hair, and we talked, and in the course of the conversation, I came close to telling him about my cancer, but didn't. And as my hair continued to be snipped, he asked me when I was going back home, back to New Jersey, assuming I would need to get back to work. And I said, well, we're here for the Thanksgiving break, and actually the week after, and then we'll go back. And he said to me, wow, aren't you lucky. And I remember, though I never told him I had cancer, I remember thinking I am lucky, regardless of cancer, regardless of the uncertain future health-wise, I am lucky, I'm lucky because I have family and friends whom I love and who love me. I'm lucky because I've had the good fortune of working in congregations which, though not perfect, were willing to put up with and love uh, and support an imperfect pastor. And I'm lucky because our God is a God who desires my welfare, not my harm, and who promises me a future with hope. And what I say about me is also true of you and of this congregation. God desires your welfare, not your harm. God promises you a future with hope. And my deepest desire is that you embrace that reality in the deepest recesses of your being, both as individuals and as a congregation. Brothers and sisters, I paraphrase Paul. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And I will remember you always in my prayers. I am excited to see what new things God will be doing in your midst. For I am confident that your future will be filled to overflowing as you continue to seek to be a light at the crossroads here in the Caldwells. Let us pray. Oh God, the the relationship of pastor to people is a a unique one. And I'm so grateful that I have had the privilege of serving amongst a good and faithful people. And my prayer now for them is that they will continue to open their hearts, their minds, the gift of your Holy Spirit, that we will go together together into a future you lead, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.